Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It is a true pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be only audio, which is kind of a shame because I wish listeners could see in the background, Matt has the most incredible collection of Chicago bobbleheads and sports memorabilia. Um, I think if we wanted to, we could probably just do a Chicago sports focused podcast for the next 30 minutes, but we're going to try and stay on topic. We're going to try and talk about Forager today. And on that note, Matt, we'd love to hear about Forager and what you all are working on. Sure. So Forager is not the yogurt company, first of all. We are uh, we are responsible for helping companies move their goods between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. So uh, companies like Pepsi shipping their snacks out of Mexico, so, uh, Samsung shipping appliances, Sabra shipping guacamole. Uh, our job is to help them get their goods across the border, um, but really picked up and delivered and scheduled and everything else that goes with that. But we've been building tech for the last two and a half years specifically to solve those problems and provide a better experience for our customers who are the, the the demand side of our business and our trucking company partners or our carriers uh, who we work with who are actually responsible for actually picking up the loads and delivering them. And I would love to hear about your background. I mean, do you come from the logistics industry? How did you uncover the need for a solution like this? So I, I've been around logistics my entire life. Uh, my, you know, from the time I was born, my dad was already working in one of the early executives at American Backhaulers. And so as, as, as a child, I was running around that office while all these guys were throwing footballs and swearing and yelling and uh, had all the different logos and, and brands on their desks. And, and that was, you know, the, 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 what became like the Chicago freight brokerage uh, style, if you want to call it that. And uh, I, I had no idea what my dad did. I didn't know what he did until I started working at Coyote when I was 19 but I, when I started working at Coyote when I was 19, I was an intern and ultimately ended up working there for about 11 or 12 years. Uh, and so I was at Coyote until early 2018 um, and, and left to start Forager. But there's one little twist in all that, which is that I also went to film school. Uh, and there was, there was this period where I tried to move to L.A. and make it in the film industry, spent a year focused on that, directing music videos trying to get up my way onto on the bigger sets and be part of these bigger music videos. And after a year, I realized I couldn't make any money doing that at the time. And so I, I went back to working at Coyote in the San Diego office. And, and, you know, I, at the time that was 2010, I said, I'm going to go to San Diego for a year and, and work and then save up enough money. And then just a, two hours away from LA, I'll just drive back up there and make movies again or music videos again. And and here I am 11 years later running Forager. So I uh, still have a passion for film and, and graphic design and photography, but, but logistics is my, my obsession right now also. So I'm a huge movie buff and listeners of the podcast, especially in our previous episode, I have the ability to go down tangents with movies. So I'm going to try again, not to do that with this interview and keep us on task. Um, I am always curious, though, about formative experiences in founders' careers and lives. And I feel like that process of taking that massive risk and, and pursuing at the time what you thought was, you know, you, you know, the profession for you, what was that experience like, you know, realizing that 
this wasn't the right fit and and that sort of end goal that you had in mind uh, really might not be the best place for you. How did you sort of turn that? I mean, it really feels like you turned that moment into an extreme positive and built momentum and it built Forger to where it is today. So I'm just curious, what was that experience like for you um, in sort of making that pivot? So one of the biggest things that I took from, from directing music videos is that you're, you're put like, I'm, I'm a, I'm a creative at heart and, and was writing the script for the most part for a lot of that. And then directing it and sometimes filming it as well, but you still have a crew. You might have 30 or 35 people plus a band of four or five guys typically are not good at following instructions and not always sober. And so you're trying to balance uh, this large group of people. A lot of people are creative. A lot of people have their own opinions and you're trying to get everybody together to, to charge towards one single vision. And so building uh directing a music video, starting a video production company as, as, as little as that was successful, but I learned a lot from that, that, that does translate to building a business more than you would think. And, and even, you know, what we do today, I have a very big attachment to our brand, our, our style, our look, how people see us externally. And I think it's allowed us to be able to build a bigger brand than, uh, than you know what we should be at our stage and size and, and numbers and all that stuff. So um, I took a lot from that. Uh, at the same time, you know, it was certainly an adjustment to go from from calling truck drivers to get them to pick up a load to directing music videos and living in Hollywood and LA and and being part of that scene to an extent. But then there's also you know going back to like grinding it out ten hours a day calling trucking companies, but the thing that I love the most about being in logistics is that it's a real problem. There is a problem that exists somewhere in the industry and you get to solve it and you solve it using brain power, using information, using data and technology. And so um, as much as I like creating stuff that people like looking at or laughing at or watching or listening to, I, I get more out of solving these really complex problems and, and trying to make them simple for people. And I think that's a great segue into... I have some questions about which bands in particular you worked with, but we'll save that for later. Uh, I feel like there's some some stories here that we maybe need to unearth either this podcast or a future podcast. But with that being said, I would love to talk a little bit about the problem that you discovered and, and what specifically, you know, we know that you're cross-border logistics, but in your mind, what was the big problem that you were trying to go after with this venture? So I'm going to rewind for a second and and most of most of this industry like everything that you have in your house or your apartment got there because it went on a truck or a plane or a train at some point and and probably a combination of that and logistics is i think the largest or second largest industry in the entire world it's a trillion dollar industry globally and it's something that or multi i think a few trillion and it, and it is how we get everything and have anything and everything and so even just shipping something in the united states there is complexity to it. You know, getting a truckload of uh, dog food from Dallas to Kansas City, you're calling a driver and whether it's a single driver that owns his own truck and trailer or somebody that's part of a large trucking company, getting somebody to go pick it up and deliver it, you need scale and density to be able to do that successfully. When it comes to cross-border, there is so much more complexity involved in moving something between the U.S. and Mexico. And it involves typically eight different parties. Um, there's a border, there's two different languages, there's typically two or three trucking companies involved with at least two or three of the tractor, that's the front part of the, the truck, 
and one to two trailers, which is the the long box that they're hauling around. And I I would compare it to when you're flying internationally, you you are say you're leaving, you know, from Chicago to go to to Mexico City. There are a couple things. One is you might fly direct from Chicago to Mexico City. Either way, you're going to clear customs. You have to go through customs when you're leaving Chicago, and you have to check into customs when you get to Mexico. They check your passport. They check everything you have to make sure that you're not importing something that has a certain value to it, and they want to make sure that there's nothing illegal coming in or leaving. And so there's there's that. The other option is that you might do a flight from Chicago to Houston, and then you might change planes in Houston and then go from Houston to Mexico City. Just because there's a lot of a lot more aircraft going back and forth between Houston and every major city in Mexico, for trucking, the difference between that and and flights is really that you go from Chicago to Laredo, Texas, at the border, and then you go to Mexico City. But that the rest of that, the fact that customs happens on both sides of the border, the fact that that handoff or that changes there, the fact that there is an option to do it direct, all of that is is the complexity of moving loads across the border, and so. It is more of an orchestration of an entire process than it is simply matching up a truck with a shipment and getting it from A to B. And so is your solution built for the truck drivers or is it built for the companies that are sending you know, goods across border to help them track, to help them manage the process? Who's the really end customer that is sort of in your ideal customer profile? So to give you the uh, buzzword, it's a two-sided marketplace. <laughs> so um, there's there's two sides to. I mean, there's more than two, I guess, kind of. But our customers, the companies that need to ship their stuff, like like the Pepsi's of the world, um, they pay us to make sure their stuff moves, and then we pay the trucking companies on their behalf. But without the trucking companies, we wouldn't exist either, and the freight wouldn't get moved. And so I feel very uh, going all the way back to when I was 19, and I was calling drivers and and dealing with them, talking to them on the phone for an hour at a time while they're driving down the highway. Um, I have a, a soft spot for the truck driver side of things, and we've built Scout, our software, to enable trucking companies to build their businesses. We don't make money off of them, um, but we want them to be able to come and grow with us in our network. And the more the more inventory, the more freight that we can show up in our marketplace, the more those trucking companies can grow and generate more revenue and stick with us longer. So we are charging the big brand companies of the world or small brand. Um, and we are paying the trucking companies, but we very much consider both sides to be like a customer. And so what is kind of the revenue model in terms of pricing um, for each side of the marketplace? Is it is it sort of a subscription service? Is it, you know, on a transaction for any given load? How did you guys sort of create the revenue model that you employ today? So there's a really traditional revenue model that exists in this industry. And, and you know, we are... Legally, we're a freight broker. Um, you know, we have invested a lot more heavily in our tech than we have in in the revenue model side of it or the rev gen side of it. But we are our responsibility is to make sure loads move, and we charge the customer. We give them a price ahead of time and say, "Hey, it's going to cost uh, four thousand dollars to ship a, a truckload of tatakis or whatever, or not tatakis, whatever the sabritas snacks are, from Monterey to Chicago, and then." we will pay a trucking company, ideally $2,800 for that. And we'll keep $200. Um, and so we are, one, we're kind of providing a price up front and taking on some of that risk. Two, we're also sort of bankrolling it for our customers. So we pay our trucking companies uh, typically in 30 days, but they can get paid quickly if they want, uh, you know, 24 hours afterwards for a fee. 
but we might not get paid from our customers for 30, 45, 60, 90 days. Um, they look at us as like a bank of sorts. And so we sit in the middle of that and we collect the difference and, and it's, you know, this is not a crazy high margin business. We're not a SaaS business where we're collecting, you know, we're charging a subscription yet, but it's one of those things where, where it's, it's somewhat low margin. And so you have to get to scale. You have to get as much volume, as much density as possible, because the more freight that you can move, the more transactions that you execute, the the more you can generate that scale, that, that ability to, to build and, and pay for yourself. You mentioned Pepsi. I'd love to hear about the industry focus that you guys um, have today. Where are most of these companies in terms of industry um, classification? You know, what industries do you serve, et cetera? Sure. So we started off focused on automotive. Um, you know, I, I've got a lot of experience in automotive freight, moving you know, automotive parts between Mexico and the U.S., and it is probably the most complicated supply chain you could possibly imagine. The way that they build uh, cars just in time, just in sequence, where freight's coming, you know, if you think about how a car works or what a car is, and, and not, I don't know how Teslas are built, but, but the traditional cars, um, there are tons of parts in there from all over the world. A lot of them come from the United States, from, from Mexico, a little bit from Canada, a lot from, you know, if it's a German car, it'll be from Germany and other parts of Europe. If it's an Asian car, there might be a lot of parts from Japan or, or, or South Korea, but there's, there's parts that come from everywhere. And so it, I think of it as like a, um, it's a, a vertically integrated supply chain. So you have tier three suppliers that are putting the nuts and bolts together that are shipping into a tier two supplier that uses those to put some smaller pieces together that they then sell, send into a tier one who assembles an entire axle or the undercarriage of a car or the entire seat. So like one of our customers builds the seats for the Nissan Maxima and the Altima, for example. And they're bringing in the seat covers, they're bringing the headrest, the foam, the frame, everything else. They put that together, they assemble it. As soon as it's done, it goes into a truck, it goes down the highway to, to the plant in Tennessee, and it goes into a car. And that car rolls off the lot or onto the lot some, you know, 200 minutes later or something. There's, it's to a, like an exact minute that they know. And so if you're late somewhere in there, you're causing a lot of problems because they operate really lean. And so we started off with automotive because we wanted to take the challenge, number one and number two. I felt that if you can excel at the most complicated part of the process, the other stuff is easy. It's It, it gets easy at that point. And so we started with automotive heavily. And then when the pandemic started last year, we saw all of the automotive stuff stop shipping. We saw our volume and our revenue drop. And so we said we need to diversify our customer focus we had already been working with with a big CPG company that we've already mentioned, um, but we had started to focus more on CPG. Uh, we started to do, you know, we'd already been doing appliances for Samsung, but we wanted to continue to focus on their, their competitors, like an LG, like, you know, calling on some of the other guys that build appliances and TVs. And so you could think about it in, in a few key categories. There's automotive, and that might extend into like industrial, um, people building industrial stuff for houses and whatnot. Then you've got appliances, electronics, and you've got food and bev, CPG. That could be anything from like the, the big brand stuff that you'd buy at Target or whatever to, um, you know, uh, guacamole or 
uh, produce we can pick up in Mexico. So there's there's a large range of stuff that comes from Mexico or ships in and out of Canada that we focus on. And then the other big commodity I would say that we do a lot with is like paper and plastic and, and recycled materials that are just commodities that get traded a lot between the three countries. We have not gotten into aerospace yet, but that's a really big industry also. Got it. Okay. No, that makes a ton of sense. I had no idea that it was that just in time in terms of the car production. The, the, oh, yeah. It gets there, the driver's side seat arrives, and they just throw it into the car, and it's a well-oiled machine. That's amazing. Um, and and, and I'm the, the chip shortage, by the way, that everybody's hearing about right now, they can't build the car without the chips. They don't build the car and then go, we'll put the chip in later. Like there, there's a lot of chips that go in that car from like the, the thing that you use to control the seat to move back, you know, forward and backwards to like the screen and the dashboard and all that other stuff. So like when what's happening right now is happening again, like we've seen pauses from a couple of our customers now, but it doesn't affect our revenue the same way. Um, so it is really like a, a house of cards, if you will, that like if there's one card missing, the thing's not going to work. And I've heard about the chip shortage and another area that I'm not sure how much it affects you, but I know you guys have written about is the truck driver shortage. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with the truck driver shortage in North America, the driving factors and kind of your prognosis on the situation? Yeah, it's funny. I was driving, uh, I was out yesterday driving somewhere and I was behind a bus and I noticed that they had an ad on the back of the bus for CRST trying to hire truck drivers. And it was like, even if you have no experience, come and apply. We'll teach you how to drive. You'll make, I forgot what the number was, but you'll make a bunch of money your first year. Maybe it's said $50,000, which the truck drivers make, can make a lot more than that. But it, it, it had all sorts of numbers laid out for that. Um, and, and there's a very real need for, for drivers right now. There's a couple issues that are happening. One is, you know, for a long time, the, that generation of truck drivers are getting like towards 60. Um, you know, people our age are not like getting in trucks as often just, you know, if you can be on a computer versus getting in a truck, like a lot of people want to be on a computer. And so we're seeing this, this um, gap because drivers are getting older and then add the fact that every truck driver was still out in the last year and a half, every truck driver was still doing their jobs. You know, they were, <laughs> they were making sure we all had toilet paper and paper towels and Kleenex when everyone was running out of it and panicking and going out and buying it. So we saw a lot of drivers get sick. Unfortunately, some died and that, that caused a gap there too. And there's been a driver shortage as long as I've been in this space. Like you, you hear people talk about driver shortages. It's a a catalyst to be able to raise rates. Um, but it has gotten worse right now. And on top of it, you know, there's the ability to drive Uber. And so if you're going to go drive for Uber or Lyft and you can be home every night versus driving a truck, you might still be able to make the same money. No, I think that makes total sense. And you're right. I think it's something that has been present in the industry for a while. Um, it just feels like now it's, it's. I've seen it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I've seen a lot more media space dedicated to this particular problem. I mean, it's it's a wide encompassing problem too. It's not just truck drivers. It feels like at every stage of the supply chain, there is labor shortages from the factories to the, you know, last mile delivery. You know, I, I think it is very all encompassing. Um, that's, that's why there's so much venture capital getting poured into the space right now. Like look at what Waymo is doing. Google's self-driving uh, division that they've kind of spun out a little bit, but like, and I think there was just an article about that too, uh, for a partnership between them and Ryder. Like, they're trying to 
autonomous trucking and autonomous cars are going to be here at some point. And that's, that solves part of your driver shortage issue. And people are trying to automate work across the entire supply chain to make it easier and cheaper. And the benefit for that is that everybody gets the benefit. Every people, there will be jobs that get affected, but everybody benefits from automation because if it's cheaper to move stuff, it ends up being cheaper to buy stuff and it's cheaper to, for all of us, every single human being that's buying something, it gets cheaper to buy it. Yeah. I, I think I was going to touch on autonomous trucking. I, how does that impact Forager in, in you know, the next five to 10 years? Uh, if, if we do reach a point where autonomous trucking has sort of, and I'm not sure your thoughts on when that could actually you know, become the industry norm. Um, I've heard varying different estimates, uh, but I'm curious just about your overall take on the future of autonomous trucking, when it might arrive at scale and how that impacts Forager. So I think, you know, first of all, I don't know enough about it to like do a deep dive on this, but like there are multiple levels, just, just like autonomous vehicles in general have those tier, you know, one through five or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what we will start to see sooner than later is, um, convoys or caravans or whatever of trucks on the highway that will run. Uh, so you'll see two or three at a time that might like pl platooning, I think is what it's called. So you'll see a few running at a time and you'll see somebody controlling the main truck. But I, I think you still end up having to have somebody in the truck because there are still drivers out and almost every other car is being driven by a human being still. And so you can't have some autonomous and some human because that makes it really messy. I don't think that becomes wide, widespread until every vehicle is autonomous and none of us own cars anymore. And at that point, I think the world looks very different. And I think the companies that are amazing at orchestrating transportation and moving freight around companies that are investing in the technology like us, I think we will be able to hook in with those autonomous trucks and help coordinate that stuff. Just because the truck can get on the highway and move without crashing into something doesn't mean they know how to go, you know, orchestrate this entire process and so we still have a spot in that in that part of the process but i think we're still a long ways away from that because i think you know they're still testing it it's still very much happening in a few key areas and um i'm excited for that that to happen eventually but i do think it's a ways away um and and i do think when it does come you know like we don't own trucks i'm not a truck driver like so we don't that those drivers might be in different types of roles, but like Forger can still orchestrate that process. But instead of it being a human in a truck, it's an autonomous truck. And the chances are that we get better data from that. <laughs> and, and the trucks might show up more on time and, and everybody ends up being a little bit happier. No, right. And I think that's so spot on. And I, I think it speaks to, I think, a little bit of the nuances behind the trucking industry. And this is a topic I definitely wanted to touch on because I've looked at a number of logistics tech startups in the last year and from varying sort of different backgrounds of founders, some founders with no trucking experience, um, but clearly really brilliant people. Um, but I, I'm curious about my understanding is there are a lot of nuances to the logistics and especially the trucking industry. And as someone who's basically been born and raised in this industry, I'd love to hear about what do you think are some of the um, particular challenges to building a startup in this industry and why domain expertise uh, is so important, maybe for building partnerships, for building um, you know, revenue share agreements, for, for really just breaking into the industry. I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on that. So, 
you know, I, I think there's a really fine line that has to be walked in some of this stuff because it's really easy to just go, well, we used to do it this way before. And, and like, to some extent, that's helpful when you're thinking about how to build a product and thinking about behavior and behavior change and whether you need to change a behavior or evolve it or replace it. Um, but there's the perfect blend is somebody that understands that has worked in the industry that understands it. That is until you've told a driver that their load canceled after they showed up to pick it up and they sat there for six hours and you're going to give them $150 for their effort, even though they burned probably a thousand dollars worth of revenue they could have generated that day. I don't think you understand how drivers work. And like, you have to do that. You have to make those phone calls. You have to do that with customers and tell them that their truck's not going to show up. Like until you actually understand what that customer that carrier has gone through, it's hard to actually build something that they care about because you have to care about it also. And so there are certainly people that come into this industry that that from the outside worked at Amazon, worked at wherever, and they go, these dumb freight people, I know how to do it better than them. And like they, they want to jump in and, and, and like you get out of the way, we'll help you. And it's like there, if you have that perfect blend of generational like understanding the industry but also being obsessed with technology and being able to build technology to solve those problems and you believe that you can solve the problems that everybody thinks humans need to solve with technology you can win in the industry there is so much bickering that happens right now about what the right mix is between people and tech and my personal opinion of where we will eventually be at forager is that um, we will get to a point where everybody that works at Forger within kind of the freight side of our business is either managing relationships, solving problems, or uh, or building awesome marketing products for us. But um, you know, it's it's not it's not people scheduling appointments. It's not people calling truck drivers to get updates. It's not people building orders in the system. Like all of that stuff needs to get automated. And I know there's so much nuance to it. People say that all the time. Every other business has evolved. The airline industry has evolved. You can get flights through kayaks so much easier than you can get calling United or calling any airline or calling a, a, a travel agent. We're trying to build that for this industry, and we've built a version of it already. It's faster to actually book a load with us than it would be to book a flight through kayak. But um, there, there's still a lot of work to do with, with automating a lot of that, that labor. For sure. For sure. I think that's so insightful. I think that many listeners, maybe on the VC side, have have also seen a bunch of logistics tech startups. And it's 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 an industry where there's a lot going on right now. As you said, there's so much money being poured into it. I think a lot of people are trying to jump into it and find you know good startups to back. Um, but I think there is a very specialized skill set and knowledge base that needs to be accounted for when analyzing any of these startups and these founders. Um, on that note, I would love to just hear about your Forager's fundraising plans and, and where you guys are at in your life cycle of fundraising and any future plans. Um, fundraising is is always interesting, and it's been interesting doing it remote because, you know, I, I've i met almost every one of our investors in person at this point. We closed our Series A right before the pandemic. Um, and so our our lead from USVP had been to our office in February or something, and I had been out in Bay Area before that with them. And and but this this time around, you know, it's been a little bit of a different process because I'm not going to Sand Hill Road, I'm not going to New York, um, I have not gotten on a plane in over a year and a half at this point. And so 
it's a different process and, and we've done it a little bit differently, but we're always open to obviously taking on more investment. And we've, we've seen a lot of really interesting inbound from uh, different types of investors, whether it's the VC side or the more strategic side or, um, you know, pursuit from the, the strategic side a little bit heavier, um, just given kind of what's happened in the industry lately. And so we've seen, uh, we're always open to the, to the conversations with investors. We'd love to take on more capital when it makes sense, but um, it's, it's always a weird process, especially when you're doing it remote and when, they're, when you're uh, based in Chicago and you're talking to people on different coasts. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Matt, this has been amazing. I, I'd love to finish on a few quick questions just because I, I have to at this point. Favorite, yeah. sh- favorite Chicago athlete of all time, go. Oh, this is going to be so unpopular now. Um, for a long time, it was Brian Urlacher. <laughs> uh, he's disappointed me a little bit recently with some of his uh, p- public stuff. Um, Jimmy Butler was always obviously a huge, uh, one of my biggest, one of my favorite players. And then uh, Bryant and Rizzo were two of my favorites. <laughs> they just get rid of everybody that I cared about. Um, I'm excited about Justin Fields. I'm really excited about Justin Fields, really excited about Lonzo Ball and uh, Zach Levine and and uh, the rest of the guys that the Bulls have been picking up over the last year or so. Yeah. I, I think people, for some reason, I know obviously there are Bulls fans who are live, breathe, and eat this stuff, and so they know what's going on, and everyone's heard about the trades, but I think people are sleeping a little bit about on the Bulls this upcoming year, at least in Chicagoland. I know all the attention's on Justin Fields. I know everyone is everyone's depressed as hell about the Cubs effectively blowing it up, even though it was probably time. But um, that's a dangerous top three with Lonzo, Levine, and and Demar Derozan. I, I think there is so much to be excited about. In don't don't forget about uh, Vucevic. I I, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. They have a top four. They don't have a top yeah. three. They have a top yeah. four. I think people are going to be a lot of really excited about this team, like like everybody was when Derrick Rose was you know killing it. Um, I think we'll start to see that like a month or two into the season when people realize that they're actually good and, and hop on the bandwagon again, depending on if we can go to games at that point, I guess. Yes. Yes. I think the madhouse on Madison, if nothing else, if we can't go to games, will be awesome this year, just based on the Hawks are going to be competitive and the bulls are clearly going to be vying for, I don't know, maybe a three, four seed in the East is my projection, but I think it's going to be an exciting year in Chicago sports. Nonetheless, Uh, Matt, Thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. This was a blast, and I can't wait to see what's next for you and for Forager. Thank you. Absolutely. It was great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you.